when people are saying the secular trend is in favor of growth, kind of comes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. Maybe this is people saying, I believe growth is going to outperform forever. Um, and that strikes me as even weirder, because in order for any group to outperform forever, one, it, it would have to be riskier, right? It's not, it wouldn't be weird if over the next hundred years, high yield bonds outperformed investment grade bonds. They're riskier. You should get paid for that risk. Um, but if growth is going to outperform value over the next hundred years, either it has to be riskier or have some other negative problem associated with it, for which I've heard no plausible argument, or you need to believe that despite the fact that growth isn't riskier than value, you believe investors are going to systematically underprice growth. It is going to be undervalued on average for that entire period. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. In today's episode, Jack and I sit down with Ben Inker, Head of Asset Allocation at GMO. Ben has been a GMO for nearly 30 years and his wealth of knowledge on the markets and investing shines through in this episode. A big part of our discussion is around his most recent research piece, Dispelling Myths in the Value versus Growth Debate. For those who continue to believe in the long-term value and value stocks, I think you'll enjoy and be encouraged by this discussion. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with GMO's Ben Anker. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. Very happy to be here. I think we could probably talk about dozens of different investing topics given your experience in the market, but where we wanted to focus most of the discussion with you today is on a recent um, paper and article, I guess you would call it, uh, titled Dispelling Myths in the Value versus Growth Debate. And um, we really enjoyed that. And in, in that piece, you highlighted seven different arguments as to sort of why investors may favor growth over value. And then you kind of countered each one of those points. And we'll go into each one of these and kind of peel back the onion. But just to start, we thought it would be good to maybe set the stage where you could just talk more about the long-term evidence of investing in value stocks and the outperformance value stocks have given values outperformance over time. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I guess, you know, the, the meta point, uh, even though the historic evidence that value has outperformed in the long run is quite strong, you can see it in the Fama French data, which goes back uh, 100 years, you can see it pretty much every country around the world where there is decent historic data uh, for uh, individual stock returns, that it, a strategy focused on buying, let's say, the cheap half of the market on a variety of different measures uh, and rebalancing that portfolio on a yearly basis uh, or more frequently has outperformed. However, there is no intrinsic right that means value must outperform. <clears throat> if value outperforms in the long run, it means one of two things. One, there is some kind of market inefficiency. These stocks are too undervalued. Uh, and there have been a number of, of different ideas about what drives that and, and, the, and the permanence of, of that behavior. 
The other possibility, which uh, various um, uh, writers have talked about, is, well, maybe this long-term outperformance, which we've seen lots of places around the world, is actually a, uh, a premium given to you for taking on additional risk. Uh, and value stocks are, let's say, are inherently riskier than growth stocks or have some other negative feature to their return set. Uh, and in order to get investors to be prepared to take that negative uh, circumstance, uh, you've got to give them a higher return. So when I look at the world, it is not necessarily the case. I don't believe that there necessarily has to be an outperformance by value in the very long run. Um, I think there very well could be uh, because most places around the world, pretty much everywhere where you've got good long-term data, it has outperformed. I think there's some decent uh, kind of psychological reasons why investors might favor growth stocks uh, too much. Um, but what I'd say would be really weird from my standpoint is living in a world where value permanently underperformed. Um, because in order for that to be the case, growth stocks would have to be priced on average too cheaply, right? People would have to say, oh, I don't want to own those growth stocks. I need to be bribed to own those growth stocks. That would feel weird. Um, and so what I would say about kind of the long-term future of value, I think value's opportunity right now is really good because the discount value stocks are trading at everywhere around the world is much wider than normal. I think there's a decent shot that value outperforms not just on this, let's say, next five-year basis, but over the next hundred years. There's a possibility it won't. I think it would be a very weird world if over the next hundred years, growth stocks were to systematically outperform value. One of the things that you uh, talked about at the beginning of your um, research piece was how value had a really good, let's say the last 15 months, there was a period where value was working really well. But in the last few months, you know, we're kind of back to the large cap growth um, trade. But what you pointed out in the paper was that uh, when you look at some of the best periods for value stocks, it's not uncommon for sort of this reversal to take place or for, for growth to outperform value, but then over time value sort of will come back. So can you just sort of talk a little bit more about what your findings were with some of those best periods for value stock performance? Sure. Uh, so in the past 50 years, there have been two great periods of outperformance uh, for value relative to growth. The first one was uh, from the period about 73 to 77. Uh, and the second one was uh, a period from 2000 to around 2002 or 2003. Um, in both of those periods, value stocks hugely outperformed growth stocks. Uh, but one other feature of those circumstances is there was a lot of volatility in the performance of value versus growth. And that high volatility means that even though those were the best periods in the last 50 years to have owned value, they also contained a disproportionate share of the best months for growth. So if you look at uh, over the last 50 years, the best 10 months in history for growth stocks relative to value stocks, six of them occurred during those two relatively short periods of values outperformance. 
So the fact that growth has a really good month or two does not mean we can't be in a kind of multi-year period of, uh, of outperformance for value. Just to step into your arguments here, you know, in your first one, you, you made a really interesting point, and I think it's something a lot of investors may not understand. And, and your, your, your point was values outperformance was due to an economic reopening, which is largely done or is going to reverse. Without that tailwind, growth should lead again. So that was the misconception. Um, and, and that sort of gets back to the issue of, is value really more cyclical than growth? And you know, most people think it is. Most, th most people think it is by a wide margin. So what have you found in terms of the cyclicality of value against growth? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> It's, it, it's, it is actually a slightly tricky problem. Uh, if we went back in time to October of 2020, so not very far back in time, um, value stocks were significantly more cyclical than growth stocks. Now, the reason for that was value is defined by what's cheap at a given point in time. And because during the COVID downturn, um, <clears throat> stocks that were very vulnerable to the kind of shutting off of in-person economic activity underperformed. And therefore, a disproportionate share of them wound up in the value universe, whether or not they were in the value universe to start with. So the reopening plays last fall were a bigger piece of value than those companies and industries would have been under normal circumstances. Um, so over the last 12 months, value has been somewhat more cyclical than growth. Part of that was just driven by the fact that we had this period of time where the reopening plays profoundly underperformed. They got cheap. They wound up in the value universe. If we look over the longer term, the question, is value more cyclical than growth, is a slightly harder one to answer. If you looked in terms of the average beta of their revenues to economic activity, they do probably look a little bit more cyclical than growth. However, the simpler question is, has value tended to outperform when the economy was growing very strongly and tended to underperform when the economy was growing weakly or shrinking? There, the evidence actually over the last 50 years has been value tends to do somewhat better when the economy is tanking than when it is growing very quickly. Um, and that is less to do with the actual uh, economic sensitivity of the revenues of value stocks and more about market responses uh, to what's going on. Um, so there is no evidence we can find uh, that suggests value stocks on average tend to underperform when the economy is weak and tend to outperform when the economy is strong. The evidence is not really that strong in any direction, but the correlation is, is negative. So value has a slight tendency to do better when the economy is doing worse. That's separate from the revenue side. And I think the revenue side probably has a similarly insignificant but positive relationship. So value stocks a little bit more cyclical from a revenue perspective than growth stocks, but from an actual performance perspective, have tended to outperform when the economy was going into the tank. 
The, uh, the second point you brought up in the article is another one that can be counterintuitive to people, and it's that interest rates are falling again and value is simply a play on rising rates. And, you know, on the surface, that seems like a pretty logical argument. You know, growth stocks are much longer duration. They should do better in a low rate environment. Value shorter duration. It should do better in a high rate environment. But you wrote a separate piece called The Duration of Growth and Value where you sort of countered this argument. And I'm wondering how you could, if you could talk about what the true relationship between the duration of growth and the duration of value is. Yeah. So <clears throat> the... The reality is it would be very difficult for value and growth to have profoundly different durations, profoundly different sensitivities uh, to uh, interest rates because of the nature of what value investing is and what growth investing is. Um, now, this is the kind of thing that is more apt to occur to a value manager, I admit, than a growth manager because for value managers, a big part of your strategy is owning stuff that will cease to be a value stock, right? You want to buy companies that look cheap today that tomorrow people will say, oh, wow, this is a wonderful growth stock. I want to have, I want to accord this company a nice premium multiple. That is a wonderful plus for you as a value manager and a source of very significant return. Uh, and the coolest thing about them about those kinds of companies is, all right, you own, you know, a, a value stock, people suddenly fall in love with it, it becomes a growth stock, you get a positive return associated probably with good fundamentals, but also a rising valuation, and then it leaves your universe. So even if the market was wrong, and this thing has simply become overvalued, it's no longer part of the value universe, you've sold it, it's, it's, it's no longer your problem. Now, the same thing happens in reverse in growth, but growth managers prefer not to think about that. If you're buying growth stocks, some percentage of them will turn out not to be as growthy as you hoped. Um, when they disappoint, their valuations come down. They leave the growth universe. And that is a bummer because their valuations fell, they had a lousy return, and then Maybe the market overreacted, but even if the market did overreact, they're out of the growth universe. Um, so there's this other term uh, in thinking about the returns to value stocks and growth stocks, which we, re we refer to as rebalancing. And this is just the return associated with value stocks ceasing to be value stocks, growth stocks ceasing to be growth stocks. It accrues to the benefit of value. It accrues to the detriment of growth. Now, why have I spent all of this time talking about this? Because when people think about the return to value investing and growth investing, they tend to think of the two profound sources of return for equity investors, which are income and growth. Uh, and if you think in terms of income and growth, and you're just doing a discounted cash flow multiple, it looks like growth stocks are longer duration. More of those cash flows come from further in the future. The reason why that's not a good way of estimating the duration of growth stocks is because some of the stocks you buy cease to be growth, uh, and their future cash flows don't count anymore for you. Uh, so what we found is that um, <clears throat> with regard to the sensitivity to the underlying discount rate, which is a little bit different from the sensitivity to what's going on in the interest rate market. But the sensitivity of the 
fundamental discount rate for stocks uh, is very similar between value and growth. And the reason why it has to be is because if a fall in that fundamental discount rate, so a world where people are demanding a lower return from stocks, if that allowed growth to trade at a significantly higher premium to the market and value a significantly larger discount, that rebalancing effect would get really big and it would be really negative for, for growth and really positive for value. So once you take into account that rebalancing effect, it turns out even if you were to have the required return to the stock market, the impact on the expected um, valuation differential is really small. Um, so at the end of the day, stocks kind of have to be stocks. They're all long duration assets, uh, but the duration of value and growth is much more similar than you'd think just looking at an individual company and trying to do a discounted cash flow model and pretending it was uh, a bond. The, uh, the third argument in the paper is the one that I think you probably thought had the mo you know, gave the most credence to, which is this whole idea that you know, in a world with intangible assets, things like price to book or our standard valuation metrics don't work as well. And, and I'm wondering what you think about that and if we have to adjust those metrics going forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, now, intangible assets are a big problem because GAAP and IASB accounting haven't kept up with them it would be a relatively straightforward change to at least, uh, say, capitalize research and development expense. Um, uh, you, you could kind of flip a switch and do that. Um, what's actually a more profound problem over the last uh, 20 years for price to book has been another thing, which doesn't really run through the income statement, but is purely a balance sheet thing, which is stock buyback. Um, price to book or book value has always been an understatement of the true value of the average company. And so that was a longer winded way of saying most stock markets, most of the time trade at a price to book greater than one. If you're trading at a price to book greater than one and you buy back stock, you tend to implode your book value. Um, so the actual biggest problem for price to book is companies that have spent a lot of money buying their stock back, um, their book value no longer means much. In a lot of cases today, it's even gone negative. Um, those needn't be high-tech companies, right? Uh, I think um, McDonald's is an example of a company that has negative book value. They do do some spending on R&D, but mostly this is just because of, of stock buybacks. So price to book is a flawed measure. Um, McDonald's is not a company that has negative true worth. Um, we think you want to make adjustments. You want to make adjustments to both the balance sheets and the income statements because you want to understand how a company is doing its investments. Make sure you are properly capitalizing those investments. Um, and neither price to book nor unadjusted price to earnings do that properly. Uh, so I think there is this problem, the traditional uh, valuation metrics are more flawed than they used to be. They were always flawed, um, but those flaws are a bigger deal than they used to be. Our response is, rather than giving up on value as a, as a strategy, is let's try to improve those measures. Let's try to make those measures as economically 
uh, relevant as, as we can. Um, I want to ask you about the idea of using a value composite. So, you know, one of the things people who support price to book tend to say is, well, all the value metrics have problems. You know, if I'm using price to sales, you know, I don't care if a company's profitable or not. That doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, given, given that, do you think using a composite approach is probably the best way to measure value? Or do you think there's some metrics that are better than others? Um, I, I'm, I'm definitely sympathetic to composite approaches uh, because you can triangulate your way to a better estimate of the true fair value. Uh, they do have some weaknesses, um, which is it's not necessarily exactly clear what to make out of that composite uh, measure you're looking at, right? You can't compare a price-to-earnings ratio with a price-to-revenue ratio. They're, you can say who's cheap and expensive on those things and re-rank, but you're, you wind up with this thing, which is just ranked. And at the end of the day, I'm most economically sympathetic to measures that are trying to get close to the true economic capital of a company. But I like composite measures as robust. My view is just because you've got a composite measure does not give you the right to ignore the problems you know exist in some of those pieces. So where we use composite measures, we're not using price to book, we're using price to adjusted book, price to economic book. And we're not using price to earnings, we're using price to adjusted earnings um, to try to take into account the ways that accounting earnings are, from our perspective, misstated. Your fourth point was my favorite one because as a value investor, one of the things people always attack me on is this whole idea of value traps. And you know, we, we end up with some of the, with some terrible companies in our portfolio where things aren't better than you know the market expects. They're actually worse. And and we end up holding these. You know, in order to get the value premium, we end up holding some of these bad companies. And and you introduced this idea in here. I'll read your point. Your point was value investing is hamstrung by value traps. Companies that continually disappoint and take up space in that portfolio, costing you money. Won't that always be the case? And you introduced the idea of a growth trap, which is that it's not just me as a value investor that's subject to these problems, but it's also growth investors. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that point and also what a growth trap is. Sure. Uh, in, in order to be able to define a growth trap, we needed to first figure out, well, what exactly do we mean by a value trap in the first place? Uh, and we had some uh, internal discussions uh, at, at GMO about this, and, and we came up with this very simple idea. A value trap at heart is a company that is significantly less cheap than you thought it was because the future fundamentals wind up being a lot worse than you were expecting. Uh, and so in order to define that in a straightforward way, uh, we decided to look for companies that did two things. One is uh, over the course of a 12 month period, their revenues wound up disappointing relative to uh, the analyst estimates. And second, their future re revenues were revised down. So what we wanted to do was to say, not only is this a company where this year turned out to be a bad year, but also the fact that this year was a bad year turned out to have an impact on what you expect the future to be. So these are companies where people have said, ooh, this is worse than I thought, and that worseness is gonna last for a while. Um, now, in value traps, I think what investors usually complain about is, man, 
the thing I hate about you is not only do those stocks exist in your portfolio, but sometimes you hold on to them and they do it to you again. Um, and that doesn't really tend to happen much with growth managers. Now, the reason it doesn't tend to happen much in growth managers is if you are truly a growth manager, you're trying to buy the companies that you think are going to grow really fast, and a company turns out to be less growthy, you sell it. So it's not going to be there on mul multiple years in a row. But still, the fact that it turned out to not be as growthy as you hoped, and that's what we're defining as a growth trap, a company you bought under the assumption that it was growth that turns out to be less growthy. Um, those companies underperform by even more than the value traps underperform. And they are a pretty similar fraction of the total universe. In both cases, it's about 30% of the universe on average that turns out to be a trap in a given year. Uh, and so growth traps happen as often as value traps. They're even more painful to a growth portfolio. Uh, there may be less tendency to focus on them because maybe by the time you're looking at the portfolio, they're no longer there. Um, but they did hurt returns uh, along the way. I don't know if you if you found this, but one of the things I think maybe investors, one of the reasons I think they maybe don't like value traps as much you know, or that they dislike them more is basically this idea that with a value trap, you've got a company that's probably not in the greatest of shape and you've got a stock that's not doing well. But with these growth traps, you know, the company might still be doing OK. It's just far behind, you know, what the market was expecting in growth. And so you end up with a bad stock, but you end up with a more decent company. So maybe people can you know, live with those in their portfolio a little bit more or something like that. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's also the case that it is often, often the thing that causes a company to wind up in a value manager's portfolio is that it disappointed, man it, it disappointed investors beforehand. So, right, so let's say you are buying some, you know, bombed out company because you think it is cheap, right? It's, uh, I don't know, Wells Fargo has gone down because uh, Elizabeth Warren is saying we should break it up. Stock price goes down, you say, hey, this looks pretty cheap relative to the company. I think I want to buy it. Now, Wells Fargo is under that scrutiny because they did some bad things and those bad things hurt its share price before. So one of the reasons why people might be annoyed by the fact that you own Wells Fargo today is, well, look what Wells Fargo did. It, it underperformed. Um, and I don't like that. Um, but the reality is, you know, as a value manager, you bought a stock because you thought it was undervalued. Um, it very well got to be undervalued because it disappointed people. Um, and that's okay for you as a value manager. I think a growth manager saying, yeah, this company has really disappointed people, but I really want to buy it because I think it's undervalued. That, that doesn't feel very growth managery. Now, I admit that's a slight caricature of what a growth manager necessarily does. A lot of them do care about valuations at some level, um, but it's, there's there's still some truth uh, to the oversimplification there. Well, I think that might kind of play into your fifth point, which is, you know, some might argue that these growth companies are simply better companies and they're, you know, better long term investments. And like you like you kind of said, you know, you're never really probably going to make 10 times your money 
on value stocks where, you know, the small subset of growth stocks like the Amazons of the world, you know, have delivered that. I mean, maybe investors pay a little bit too much attention to the Amazons of the world, but, you know, they're hugely successful companies and they've been great, you know, stocks to hold if you can, um, if, if, if you can hold on to it and if you've been invested in it for a long period of time. But the point I think you were making there was when you look at companies valuations today and those companies that trade at let's say north of 10 times sales you know as a group the performance of those growth stocks um isn't that good so can you just kind of talk to that a little bit and what you highlighted in the piece yeah so the uh what i want to pull apart is this the difference between narratives that get built up around extraordinarily successful companies um, and the sort of reality of investing in a pool of companies that people have those kinds of hopes for. So Amazon has been an extraordinary company to own, whether you bought it, you know, at its IPO, whether you bought it even at kind of its valuation peak in, in 1999, it's been a great ride. Um, but it's been a great ride, right? We have wound up as one of the handful of largest companies in the history of the world from a valuation, from a market capitalization perspective. So of course the returns were really good. Um, if you were to buy a portfolio of companies that people have extremely high hopes for, they don't tend to do that well. Um, and in, in the piece I talked about, uh, stocks trading at 10 times uh, sales or more. Now, 10 times sales, I, it, it's kind of fun for a couple of reasons. One was there's a famous quote by, uh, by Scott McNeely in the aftermath of the internet bubble talking about how absurd 10 times sales is. The other is, even if it's an absurd valuation, it is not so absurd that there haven't been at least a handful of companies that have traded at that multiple at any given time. Today, there is a reasonable population of companies trading at 30 times sales. Through most of history, there haven't been any. So one of the nice things about the 10 times sales or more cohort is I can look at its performance back to 1980. It turns out that group has underperformed the market. It has given a return of 4.4% you know, real from 1981 uh, against the S&P 500, which gave a return of 8.7% real. So you wound up with uh, somewhat more than six times your money investing in the S&P than you would have investing in this group, who have barely kept up with um, uh, an investment-grade bond index. So investing in companies that people have really high hopes for uh, has generally been a lousy investment, even though a lot of the best stories about investing and you know making a hundred times your money also occurred within that cohort. The next point was, you know, some might argue that value had really what was a tactical rally from October to March, but that the secular trend, you know, remains sort of more favorable to growth. But as you pointed out, if that were to be true, that would mean, have to mean that investors would have to be systematically underpricing growth stocks versus value stocks. So can you just sort of expand on that point? And I guess what are some of the assumptions, you know, investors would have to make if that were to be true? Right. So 
You know, I, I brought in that argument because I, I tend to hear it a lot. Um, and I think people can, make, can uh, believe one, or two, one of two things by it, and I'm not sure which they necessarily mean. So if the secular trend is still in favor of growth, that could mean, hey, I don't know what's going to happen over the next 100 years, but over the next five years, the next 10 years, I think growth is going to continue to outperform. Um, uh, that feels weird to me uh, because value stocks are trading in the fourth percentile of their history relative growth stocks. So 96% of history up until now, the, the discount value stocks have traded at has been smaller than this. So if you were saying, yeah, I still think growth is undervalued today, you're saying that <clears throat> despite the fact that it is trading more expensive relative to value than it has 96% of the time, that's still not expensive enough. Um, which feels weird. Um, it seems like a very strong assumption. Um, and one of the reasons why it feels like a strong assumption to me is people tend to look at the last decade or the last 14 years when growth has outperformed and say, yeah, what if we get a repeat of that? And what I would say is, hey, if we got a repeat of that on a fundamental basis, so the, the income of value was the same, the income of growth was the same, the growth of value was the same, the growth of growth was the same, and the rebalancing impacts were similar, um, if all of that happened again, but value was starting at the valuation it's trading at today, value would win. Um, so I think in order to believe over the next decade, growth is going to win despite the fact that value is trading at one of its all-time widest discounts, you need to believe that the future fundamentals are going to be much, much better for growth than they have been even in this period of some of, you know, growth's best 14-year period in history. Um, the other possibility that when people are saying the secular trend is in favor of growth kind of comes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. Maybe this is people saying, I believe growth is going to outperform forever. Um, and that strikes me as even weirder because in order for any group to outperform forever, one, it, it would have to be riskier, right? It's not, it wouldn't be weird if over the next hundred years, high yield bonds outperformed investment grade bonds. They're riskier. You should get paid for that risk. Um, but if growth is going to outperform value over the next 100 years, either it has to be riskier or have some other negative problem associated with it, for which I've heard no plausible argument, or you need to believe that despite the fact that growth isn't riskier than value, you believe investors are going to systematically underprice growth. It is going to be undervalued on average for that entire period. And I have no idea why you would come to that conclusion, given that in the long run of history we've had to date, all of the evidence is if, there's an, if there is an inefficiency, it's that people tend to hit value stocks too hard. They trade at too big a discount, um, not growth stocks trading at too small a premium. Right. Those are good points. Um, the last uh, argument is, and you know, we, this was kind of the, the narrative, I would say, maybe 2015 to right up until the 
uh, COVID until March of, of last year, but you know that we, we live in a lower growth world than we used to, and it makes sense for investors to bid up those companies that can actually deliver growth. Um, as you pointed out, um, you know, GDP growth has been slower in the last 20 years versus maybe the last 80 years in the US. Um, but what is the main, and you kind of went into a, I think you've hit on some of this already, but what's the main counter argument to this point about lower growth and investors just looking for those companies that are delivering on growth in the market? Yeah. So look, it is always the case, you know, the market is not grossly stupid. Um, growth companies do outgrow value companies on average. Um, that's why they're growth companies and, and, uh, Growth companies do deserve to trade at a premium to the market. Um, if we look at what's happened uh, over the last uh, 14 years when growth has outperformed value, the really interesting thing to me that I think most investors don't necessarily understand is that the undergrowth of value stocks, the amount that they have undergrown the market, is exactly the same as the amount that they undergrew during the period from 1983 to 2006, which was kind of the heyday of value. That was a period where value strongly outperformed. It did so despite the fact that the value stocks significantly undergrew uh, the growth stocks uh, by almost exactly the same amount, actually a little bit more. They, under, they undergrew growth stocks by a little bit more in that earlier period than they have in the more recent period. So if you slow growth by a couple of points, which is indeed what's happened uh, since about 2005 in the U.S., economic growth has taken a step change lower in, in the U.S., but the gap between the growth of growth stocks and value stocks remains the same, the growth stocks aren't worth a larger premium. They're worth a larger premium if they outgrow by more. And actually, there's one other piece. So in addition to the fact that value stocks over the last 14 years have outperformed because they started that period relatively cheap. Value stocks were trading at some of the smallest premium we have ever seen in history in 2006. And now they're trading at some of the largest premium we've ever seen. So a lot of that outperformance is simply going from really cheap to really expensive, or sorry, really cheap to really expensive. Um, the other piece which has legitimately changed for value over this period um, is, has to do with that rebalancing piece. I talked about how the problem for growth is some of those companies wind up not being growth. Um, and it turns out growth on average is a feature of the young. Younger companies tend to be growthier, older companies tend to be more valuable. Um, and so if you look at the average time a growth stock stays in the growth universe, um, it's not all that long. Um, in this more recent period, they've stayed in on average about a year longer. So they went from being growth stocks for, let's say, about four years to about five years. And that's a little bit wrong, but the, but the difference is, is about a year. And that's cool. That is good for growth. And that was a piece of why growth did better. Um, 
So what I would say, and, and this kind of comes back to uh, something we were talking about or, or you sent me uh, previous to this, if we were to come back in 10 years and growth has outperformed value again, what would have happened? I would say the thing that almost certainly would have had to have happened is that tendency for growth stocks as they get older to cease to be growth stocks would have had to have really fallen away. And the average period that a growth stock remains a growth stock would have had to go from like five years to nine years or 10 years. Uh, a really big deal. Um, I don't think it's that likely to happen. Um, honestly, the, the data we have is significantly impacted by the tech giants. So the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles of this world, which have indeed remained growth stocks at sizes that were impossible before. Um, now they have done that largely by being monopolists, right? They have monopolized their industries. It is wonderful to be a monopolist until and unless that monopoly is uh, is impacted either by somebody coming in and out competing you, which isn't all that common, or uh, there being uh, a regulatory change, a market environment change uh, that renders that monopoly less, less valuable. Um, honestly, over the next 20 years, I think it would be, it is likely to be a less good period to be a giant company. Uh, we're certainly seeing that in China today, and we're seeing some grumblings about that in the U.S. Uh, there's no certainty there. Um, but one of the reasons why I don't think growth companies will remain growth companies forever uh, is the best you can hope for as a growth company is to not have any material competition. Uh, and as you get bigger and bigger and don't have material competition, that winds up having some pretty negative impacts on society and the economy. And it would make sense uh, for society to step in and, and do something about it. I wonder, now that we've gone through all the points, I wanted to ask you about the implementation of this in the real world. So I've been somebody who's been talking to people recently a lot about how value is cheap, and I've been talking about, to them about that for a while. And, you know, one of the problems you have when value is cheap is you're never going to get the timing right. And I'm just wondering, you know, getting at the whole concept of factor timing, do you think for an investor it's possible to add exposure to something like value when it's out of favor and get the timing right enough that you can increase your returns? Uh, I think so. I think one of the problems with being a professional investor is you tend to stare at this stuff too much. Um, one of the things I can remember actually, even when I started at, at GMO 30 years ago, talking to Jeremy Grantham, uh, our firm's co-founder, uh, about something called the amateur's advantage. The nice thing about not being a professional in something is you don't tend to notice stuff that the professionals obsess over. By the time you have recognized, huh, something weird is going on, the professionals have been kind of banging the gong on it for a while and saying, oh my God, this is weird, this is weird. They've been positioned against it and they have lost money. Um, so I think it is possible for investors, almost particularly non-professional investors, to be able to take advantage of situations where markets have gotten truly extreme. Uh, the tough thing for a manager uh, like me is I'm always obsessed 
with the valuation of assets. And it's hard for me not to say, ooh, value is a little bit cheaper than normal. I want to have a bit of a bias there. And ooh, value is a little bit more cheaper than normal. I want to have more of a bias. And so by the time we get to a point like today where, man, value has only been cheaper than this like six months entirely over the last 50 years, you've been overweight value for a long time. Um, the good news about being someone who doesn't pay that much attention is now's when you notice. Uh, and at the extremes, that's when valuation is uh, most powerful. Um, so I think it is possible. It requires a lot of discipline if you're a professional because you have to not react to the little changes. Um, it's easier to do that as an amateur. Picking up on the idea that value has these long periods of underperformance, I'm wondering what you think about the, the appropriate time frame to evaluate a strategy. You know, investors obviously tend to use three years, which we know is a terrible, you know, length of time to use. You know, I used to say earlier in my career, maybe something like 10 years is appropriate, but looking at these long periods of underperformance, I'm wondering if it's maybe it really has to be something like 20 when you look at, it, at something like a value strategy. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think an appropriate period to measure something like this is. Yeah. Um... I wish there was a simple answer. I, I think the reality is if you really want to understand what's going on, um, there is no time period that is long enough to guarantee that the returns are showing you what really happened. What you need to do is go deeper than the returns and look into the drivers of those returns as well as the returns themselves. Right? Because as, as you say, if you go back 10 years, Values underperformed for 10 years, and maybe anything that's underperformed for 10 years is kind of dead as a strategy. If you look over the last 10 years, the biggest reason why value underperformed was because it went from normal valuations or a little bit more expensive than normal valuations to some of the cheapest valuations in history. And if you look at what happened from a growth perspective, from an income perspective, and from a rebalancing perspective, wasn't that, wasn't that weird? So the reality is if you really want to know what's going on with value or a market or any kind of investment, you got to go deeper than looking at the returns and look into the determinants of those returns and what they have been. Um, otherwise, yeah, 40 years is long enough, maybe 20 years is long enough in almost all circumstances. But the problem is by the time you've got that length of history, things have changed enough that it might not be that relevant anymore. Picking up on your, your idea of having to dig deeper, um, you know, one of the things all of us that are value investors are hoping for here is sort of a re repeat of the period after 2000. Um, you know, we're obviously value struggled for a while, but then we got a great, great bull market for value from 2000 to 2002. And I'm wondering, as an expert who's looked at that, what do you think that, how do you compare and contrast what went on with 2000 with, with what's going on now? Do you, do you think they are very similar markets or do you think there's some major differences there? Uh, there definitely are some significant similarities. Uh, you know, if we look at the cohort of stocks trading above 10 times sales, um, the only two times in history that that's ever been more than 10% or so of the U.S. stock market were the 2000 event and today's event. So from a pure speculation standpoint, man, we are seeing a level of speculation that we have not seen in 20 years. Uh, so there is a significant similarity there. There is some difference, however. Um, the, and, and some of this comes down to what the growth universe is. Right? The growth universe 
is disproportionately today a handful of giant tech names. And those companies, the difference between 2000 and today is those companies are legitimately extraordinarily profitable companies. Um, they are trading at high valuations, but they are not trading at obviously crazy valuations, right? If you, if you look at the fangs, they're trading probably somewhere on average in the mid-30s on a PE basis, which is a pretty high PE. Um, but it's not impossible for stocks trading at, uh, you know, somewhere in the mid-30s to give a, a, a decent return. So one difference is there exist some tech stocks today that are truly extraordinary companies. Um, my guess is they will be able to be slightly less extraordinary as time goes on because there is going to be a backlash against the market power that they have. Um, but I can't swear to that. Um, and they're not trading at crazy multiples, right? Cisco in 2000 was trading at an utterly crazy multiple. Apple today is trading at a high multiple, but not obviously crazy. Um, now, there are a lot of obviously crazy companies within the, within the growth universe, um, but there, is, there exist large, profitable, um, really pretty extraordinary companies in that growth universe. Uh, so that is different, um, albeit growth companies on average are trading at some of the highest valuations we've ever seen in history. Uh, and I think what is going to wind up similar to 2000 is for the average of those companies, there is simply no way the future uh, can live up to those really, really rosy expectations uh, that the market has placed on them. I just had two more questions um, before we uh, wrap up here. You've been really generous with your time, so very much appreciate it. Um, one of the concerns I think that you, we're hearing more of is like on the 60-40 traditional sort of, you know, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, this traditional, you know, asset allocation that's used, you know, for many people. And given where the market's valuation is, future expected returns, and also where uh, yields are today, you know, the 60-40 doesn't look like it's going to deliver anywhere near what it's done, let's say, in the past 20 years. So what I, you can tell me if you agree with that or not. And then if you do, you know, what would be in your mind some alternatives for investors that are looking to get better returns? Um, I mean, how would you how would you approach that? Yeah. Uh, so that is, I, I think, the central problem for investors today. I think if the investment heuristics we grew up with in terms of how much you need to save from your salary to be able to retire, how much you need to have as a nest egg in order to retire, uh, kind of the way pension funds and endowments have to work, all of those effectively assumed that a 60-40 portfolio could deliver inflation plus about 5%. And historically, it has done. Um, the problem is, from today, it can't possibly, right? Even if you completely disagree with me on the equity side, and you believe that despite the fact that the U.S. equity market is basically never traded as expensive as we are today, it's still going to deliver 6% real. Even if that was true, and it's not, um, 
you're not going to get 5% real from your 60-40 portfolio because the bond side of the equation isn't going to hold up its end, right? Historically, bonds delivered, well, actually since the early 80s, uh, over 4% real, but in the longer run, maybe 1% to 2% plus inflation. Today, they are yielding significantly less than expected inflation. Um, so even if you believe that stocks were fair value today, you're not going to get 5% uh, real out of a 60-40 portfolio. Given what we believe about stocks, which is at the end of the day, you kind of deserve to get the normalized earnings yield or the, the inverse of the normalized PE of the market as an investor, you're going to be really even farther from it. Um, so the bad news is since investors at the end of the day, in aggregate, own stocks and bonds and real estate, and let's oversimplify and say that's about it, um, all of those assets are priced to deliver lower returns than history, so we are in aggregate doomed to get lower returns. Um, that is a bummer. Because uh, we kind of need the five in order for the math to work out, but just because we need it doesn't mean the market has to give it to us. Uh, so I think the reality is we're going to have to save more uh, than we were taught. Um, we're going to have to work longer than we'd like to. Um, and we're going to have less uh, wealthy retirements uh, than, than we've been taught we should expect. Um, now, for an individual investor, you can get away from some of that, right? U.S. stocks are trading at some of the most expensive valuations in history. Outside of the U.S., that is much less true. Uh, the gap between the average valuation of U.S. stocks and stocks outside of the U.S., whether in Europe or Japan or in the emerging markets, has basically never been bigger than it is today. So one thing as an individual investor that you could do, or I mean, even as an institution you can do, is bias your equities outside of the U.S. You're buying cheaper assets. That's, that's going to help. Um, you know, on the fixed income side, the reality is bonds used to do some pretty cool things for you. They provided income, they provided a return above cash, and they provided this lovely protection in the event of bad economic uh, events. Uh, today, at the yields we have now, they're unlikely to provide much of any of those things. They don't have material income associated with them. After inflation, it's negative. The yield curve is awfully flat. You're probably not going to beat cash by very much. Uh, and it's not clear how much they can provide protection against a bad economic environment because the bond yield is already so low. Um, so uh, when we're putting together portfolios for our clients where they will allow us to, what we've, one of the things we've done is taken a lot of the money that would historically have been in high quality fixed income and put it in liquid alternative strategies, uh, which are not that correlated to the stock market, but where um, the expected returns are somewhat higher uh, and they have some of the nice uh, diversifying characteristics. So I think there are things that you can do as an individual to try to help, uh, but the reality is the whole system, at the end of the day, owns all the assets. And today, honestly, that set of assets, right, within equities, U.S. equities have 
this is a slight oversimplification, but let's just say in living memory have never been this large a percentage of the total global equity universe. And we all own the global equity universe. Uh, so as, as a group, there's no way around the problem. Uh, as a subset of the group, you can try to bias yourselves towards relatively cheap stuff uh, and do better. Those are some good thoughts. I'm glad I asked that question because you had some really important things to say there. Um, just, we, we have sort of a standard closing question here. Um, and that is, you know, based on your uh, decades of experience in the markets, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, um, what would that be? I wish it was a really simple thing. I think it's a simple idea, but it requires more work than I would love. Uh, but that is, whenever you're investing in something, make sure you understand why you should get paid for owning this asset, for performing this activity. Understand why it not only makes sense for you as the investor, but whoever is going to be funding that investment on the other side. Um, why it makes sense for them to be giving you the return you need. I would say there's, you know, there, there's a lot of errors people can make as investors, but one of the crucial ones that people make time and time again is forgetting about the fact um, that if you're going to sustainably get a return, it needs to make sense to give you that return in terms of the person on the other side. And where you can't answer that question well, um, you're not investing, you're speculating. So I would say, you know, for the retail investors who are buying, you know, one week call options on AMC, the reality is you're not investing. The person on the other side has no reason to want to give you a high return, right? The person on the other side, for one thing, is a market maker, and the market maker is the casino. The casino is only there to try to make money off of your activity. But the simple truth is whenever you're buying a call option, you're not doing anything useful. You only get the upside. And if you only get the upside, the person on the other side only gets the downside. There's no reason for them to want to give you a, a good return in the long run. So I think investors could avoid a lot of errors if they thought not just about, ooh, does this make sense for me? But does this make sense for me and the guy on the other side? If it doesn't make sense for the guy on the other side, this is not going to be a sustainable strategy in the long run. Excellent advice. Um, very good. Uh, if we'll put a link to um, the uh, note, the research report, the value, the value and growth debate paper in the show notes. But if people want to learn more about the research you guys are working on, um, they can obviously go to your website, but you can tell them where to go. Yeah, so the website is www.gmo.com uh, and anybody can, uh, uh, you, you do have to put in your information in order to uh, get the papers out, but um, that's free. Uh, and, uh, and you can see the research, not just the paper I wrote, but uh, research written by uh, investors across GMO. That's great. Thank you very much, Ben. This has been, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. 
We appreciate it.